and read with me two passages of Scripture. They'll both be from the book of Acts. Our first passage will be from Acts chapter 6, the verses 1 through 7. Acts 6, the verses 1 through 7. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Procurus, and Nisenor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. So far from Acts 6, and we will now turn forward to Acts chapter 14. And there we will read the verses 20 through 28. Acts 14, verses 20 through 28. Beginning at verse 20. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city. And on the next day, he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Then they passed through Pisidia and came to Pamphylia. And when they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Italia, and from there they sailed to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had fulfilled. And when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them, and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles, and there remained no little time with the disciples. And finally... We'd like to read from the Belgic Confession, Article 31. Belgic Confession, Article 31. You can find that in the back of your book of praise. And here we read what the churches confess regarding, regarding the officers of the church. Read as follows, the believer, we believe that ministers of God's word, elders and deacons ought to be chosen 
to their offices by lawful election of the church with the prayer and in good order, as stipulated by the word of God. Therefore, everyone shall take care not to intrude by improper means. He shall wait for the time that he is called by God so that he may have sure testimony and thus be certain that his call comes from the Lord. Ministers of the word in whatever place they are have equal power and authority for they are all servants of Jesus Christ, the only universal bishop and the only head of the church. In order that this holy ordinance of God may not be violated or rejected, we declare that everyone must hold the ministers of the word and the elders of the church in special esteem because of their work, and as much as possible be at peace with them without grumbling or arguing. So far. We will now stand and sing Psalm 141, the verses 1, 4, and 8. Brothers and sisters, the text for the sermon this afternoon comes to us from Titus chapter 1. Titus chapter 1, and we will read the entire chapter. We read God's word as follows. Paul a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth with accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. To Titus, my true child in a common faith, Grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus, our Savior. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced, since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in the faith not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the command of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure. But to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. 
Beloved of our Lord Jesus Christ, is the truth important? Perhaps it's a strange question to ask at the beginning of a sermon. For after all, if the truth isn't important, why would I even bother proclaiming the word of God? And yet, we live in a time when the very concept of truth is under attack. Truth is no longer understood as a universal, all-encompassing principle that applies to everyone. No, our postmodern world has redefined truth and reduced it to personal preference. Much like our preference for ice cream. Some like chocolate, some like vanilla. Some believe the Bible, others the Koran, or any number of other world religions. In our world, what matters is if it works. If it works for you, then it's true for you. Man has become his own God, determining his own truth. And this modern way of thinking is also alive and well within the church, brothers and sisters. Some believe that Christianity should be practiced this way and others that way, and these decisions are often made on the basis of personal preference rather than on the objective truth of God's word. And for many in the broader church community, church membership has become simply a matter of personal choice. Even within the church, sinful humanity wants to determine the truth for themselves. And really, this should not surprise us. This is the state of carnal man. It has been the pattern since the fall in the garden. Romans 1 verse 21 reminds us that although fallen man knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. And it goes on to say, but they became futile and their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. And we read the implications of this choice a few verses later. Man exchanged the truth of God for a lie. And isn't that what our postmodern culture is encouraging us to continue to do? To exchange the truth of God's word for the lie that we can determine our own truth. Beloved, there is really nothing new under the sun. As the author of Ecclesiastes has told us, Paul encountered much the same thing in Crete some 2,000 years ago when he wrote his epistle to Titus. It was a culture of excess where gluttony and laziness were the norm. There was a moral decay in Crete that earned the inhabitants the reputation for being liars. The culture had abandoned the truth. And in the midst of this decadent culture, not unlike our own, there were also grave concerns within the church itself. There were false teachers promoting lies for the sake of gain, bringing whole families into ruin within the church. And so in response, Paul commissions Titus to straighten things out. And the first thing he instructs Titus to do is to appoint proper leadership within the church of Crete. 
Therefore, I preach to you God's word under the following theme and points. In response to a deceitful world, the Lord appoints Christian leaders to defend his truth. And we will consider the authority of Christian leaders, secondly, the character of Christian leaders, and finally, the task of Christian leaders. As our theme suggests, Paul is deeply concerned about the truth. A concern that is as relevant today as it, is, that it, as it was back then. But in order to see the full significance of this concern, we need to look at the context in which the letter to Titus was being written. Paul's letter to Titus was likely written after his release from prison in Rome. That is why we don't read about the church of Crete in the book of Acts. And although Paul had stopped in Crete on his way to stand trial before Caesar, as we read in Acts 27, it's unlikely that that short stopover gave him the opportunity to start a church. It's generally believed that it was sometime after Paul's release from prison that he went back to Crete as part of his missionary work to the Gentiles. And we can conclude from the letter to Titus that there were both Jews and Gentiles within the churches of Crete. Paul makes reference to both the Jews who were likely converts from the local Jewish synagogues and to the native Cretans. We also know from Galatians that Titus, his companion, was a Gentile convert who had traveled with Paul to Jerusalem. Titus had also been entrusted with the task of collecting funds while he was in Corinth. He had become a trusted assistant to Paul, and according to our text, accompanied Paul on his missionary work in Crete. When Paul moves on from Crete, he leaves Titus behind with the task of straightening out what was left unfinished and appointing elders in every town. Now, it might seem strange that Paul would have left Titus behind without telling him the reason for doing so. And now, after departing, he forwards his reasons in this letter. Of course, it's impossible to know exactly what Paul had discussed with Titus prior to leaving Crete, but it's very likely that Titus was well aware of what his task was. And so you might ask the question, why does Paul follow up with this letter? And perhaps the answer lies in the character and use of the apostolic writings. By this time, Paul has already written several letters to the various churches. His authority and his apostleship were unquestioned. In fact, Paul's letters were being used to support and promote apostolic teaching throughout the churches. Often a letter would be circulated from church to church. For example, the teaching contained in the letter to the church of Corinth was, a respective, sorry, was respected as authoritative in the other neighboring churches as well. The authority of Paul's teaching went well beyond the church to which the letter was addressed to. And the same can be said of Paul's letter to Titus. With this letter in hand, Titus could show the nature of his authority within the churches. His authority had been given by the Apostle Paul, who in turn had been called and commissioned by Christ himself. And Paul makes that point from the very onset of his letter in the salutation. 
Paul begins his letter in the customary way, laying out his credentials. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. In many of Paul's previous letters, Paul refers to himself as a servant or a slave. But the usual referent is to Jesus Christ. Paul, a servant of Christ. But in this one instance here in in his letter to Titus, he refers to himself as Paul, a servant of God. This reference conveys a more direct connection with the Old Testament. For instance, Moses was referred to as a servant of God in Exodus 14, verse 31. Or one might consider Samuel in the temple who replied to the Lord, Speak, for your servant is listening. Such servants in the Old Testament were set apart for special service to the Lord, much like an apostle in the New Testament was called to a special office by our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. This self-designation would have sent a message to the recent Jewish converts that Paul was commissioned by a special task by God himself. To those more acquainted with the Christian community, he reminds them of of his apostolic authority rooted in the lordship of Jesus Christ. And then he goes on to explain the nature of his calling. He is an apostle for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth. Paul is a servant of God and an apostle of our Lord Jesus Christ for the purpose of calling those chosen to eternal life, God's elect, into a living fellowship with God the Father through our Lord Jesus Christ. A relationship that could only be entered into by coming to the knowledge of the truth. And truth here in our text is not limited to simple head knowledge. But as our text states, such truth accords with godliness. This truth sets the believer on a path of righteous living that displays itself in a life of truth steeped in the word of God. John 8 records Jesus saying much the same thing. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Abiding in his word means living out of the truth revealed by the message of the gospel. And such knowledge leads inevitably to what Paul states next, to hope of eternal life. Now we need to understand that the character of this hope is different from our common conception of hope. Hope in common use has a sense of conditionality attached to it. We hope for something that might happen. But the hope that Paul is speaking of is a hope rooted in the certainty of God. Because it's a hope rooted in the sure promises that he has made. We also heard this morning. It's the same reason that the author to the Hebrew states, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Such hope is anchored in the character of our God, who Paul proclaims never lies. He is the embodiment of truth. And his promises are sure. 
And he has made a promise that there will be a holy people chosen to eternal life, elect from every tribe and nation, gathered from, his, from this world, who are on the road to heavenly glory. And our text states that this promise was conceived of and put into place in eternity before the beginning of the ages. And at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. In other words, Paul is declaring that these sure promises given by a God who cannot lie were made known and revealed at the proper time by the faithful preaching of the gospel entrusted to him according to his calling. God's plan for salvation had been revealed through the coming of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. God was indeed true to his word. And his ongoing plan for salvation continued through the proclamation of the word as it continues today. Isn't that what Paul is committed to? In 1 Corinthians he says, but we preach Christ crucified. And now that Paul has laid out the source of his authority and his purpose, he addresses Titus. To Titus, my true child in a common faith. Paul addresses Titus as a father, not on the basis of flesh and blood, but on the basis of a shared faith. It's often said that blood is thicker than water. But scripture here paints a different picture. In Matthew 12, verse 50, Jesus declares that whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. There is something that binds us even closer than blood. A common faith, secured by our Savior on the cross and established in eternity by our Heavenly Father. Paul Paul points to that bond of fellowship to ensure the readers of this letter recognize Titus' authority. He is one with Paul in faith and purpose, administering his task under the headship of the Apostle. A true child, Paul goes on as an Apostle to extend God's greeting to Titus, a blessing of favor and peace, further confirmation that Titus was a true member of God's family. And following this, Paul explains his reasons for leaving Titus in Crete. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained in order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. One might initially conclude that Paul gives Titus two distinct tasks to put what remained in order, and to appoint elders. But a closer study suggests that these two tasks are one and the same thing. From our reading in Acts 14, we learn that churches were established by the preaching of the gospel, and later it was common practice to appoint elders in the newly formed churches. The appointment of elders seems to be the final step in the establishment of a new church plant. After preaching and strengthening the churches, Acts states that they appointed elders. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they believed. The appointment of elders was often accompanied by the laying on of hands, a sign that authority had been conferred upon the elders. In Crete, the churches had already been established, but the work of church planting was not yet finished because elders had not yet been 
appointed. This was what remained to be put in order. Once this task had been completed, the churches could begin to function on their own and initiate the practice of choosing office bearers for themselves. This was the practice of the established churches, as we read in Acts 6. The the disciples instructed the churches at Jerusalem to pick some brothers from within the congregation to be appointed to administer the ministries of mercy. And here again we read that they laid their hands on them. The apostles who were commissioned and called by Christ extended authority to the office bearers of the church. Titus was to do the same thing. Having been commissioned by the Apostle Paul, who in turn had been called directly by Christ, he was to put suitable men in positions of authority within the church of Crete. And here we see that the authority of the church officers rests ultimately in the lordship of Jesus Christ. And we as a church continue in line with this practice of choosing office bearers from within our congregation and conferring upon them the authority given by Christ himself. And given the weight of this responsibility, it's fitting that Paul gives Titus some further instructions, guidelines for choosing office bearers who will truly be able to lead the congregation in the knowledge of the truth. These scriptural parameters given by Christ through the Apostle Paul for choosing elders continue to serve the church's well-being even today. And that brings us to our second point, the character of Christian leaders. In Paul's instructions about the character of Christian leaders, twice he states that they must be above reproach. In other versions, this word reproach is translated as blameless. To suffer reproach means to be put to shame, so a Christian leader was not to be open to any charge that was likely to bring him shame. And so, through association with the church, caused the church to be exposed to ridicule and contempt. In other words, the elder needed to be blameless. Then Paul returns to the family relationship. He states an elder must be the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery and insubordination. This text literally states that an elder should be a one-woman man, implying complete faithfulness within the marriage relationship. And it moves on to his children. And here, brothers and sisters, we encounter a challenge in our translation. The word translated as believer can also be translated as faithful. And perhaps some of your Bibles indicate that in the footnote. There are a number of reasons to prefer this word faithful. 1 Timothy 3 verse 4 has a parallel passage to this one in Titus. And there Paul lays out similar requirements for elders regarding their children. And there he says he must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. This instruction is more in line with the idea of children being faithful to their fathers through submission. 
In addition, what follows in Titus fits better with the notion of being faithful. Our text goes on to say children are to be faithful and not open to the charge of debauchery and insubordination. In other words, submissive to their fathers. Debauchery in modern terms would be to live in our sensual lust through such activities as partying, drinking, and carousing. And insubordination would include such things as being mouthy, disrespectful, and disobedient. If children within a household displayed such unfaithfulness, then the father's ability to to manage the affairs of the church would be called into question. Paul goes on to explain why. As God's stewards, he must be above reproach. The dominant idea is that if a man is able to manage his own household well, if he is faithful to his wife and diligent in raising his children, then he will be able to manage God's household as well. And now Paul expands on this notion of being above reproach. He provides a list of qualities that an elder must not possess and a list of character traits that they must exemplify. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. To be arrogant or quick-tempered would be detrimental in dealing with those who were insubordinate, as Paul instructs Titus later in this chapter. And later in chapter 3, Paul warns Titus to avoid quarreling. The elder's rebuke is rather to lead to soundness of faith and needs to be exercised according to the qualities listed in verse 8, using self-control, uprightness, and discipline. Likewise, an elder was to avoid such behavior that would lead him astray from his duty of being a good steward of God's house. Drunkenness and greed were the opposite of the disciplined and self-controlled virtues necessary to be a suitable overseer in the Church of Christ. Finally, hospitality as a virtue in the early church was far more than just extending the hand of friendship. The reason is that it, is, it, was often, it often involved taking in those who were being persecuted for the faith, with the inevitable result that the elder himself might be exposed to hardship. An elder was to be willing to put himself out for the sake of the family of God. Such character traits serve to make the elder one who is suitable to teach the truth as set out in the gospel. Through both his walk and his talk, the elder was to be one who exemplified the truth of the gospel in both word and deed. And this brings us to the final quality that Paul insists that an elder must possess. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, because only one who held firmly to the word of God could be an effective leader in the church of Christ. Paul himself declared that his task was for the sake of the elect and their knowledge of the truth. He was convicted of the sure promises of God, and he commissions Titus, a true son, who shared that conviction. And then he instructs Titus to appoint elders who were also so convicted, holding firmly to the message of the gospel. Such character traits must continue to typify those suitable for the office of elder. And he goes on to tell us why. So that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine. 
and also to rebuke those who contradict it. And that brings us to our final point, the task of Christian leaders. The reason that Paul insists that elders be able to give sound instruction is because there are many within the church who were empty talkers and deceivers. And according to verse 16, they claimed to know God, but were really insubordinate, not grounded in the truth. He especially takes issue with the circumcision party who insisted that members of the church conform to the legal requirements of the Old Testament law. This outward conformity was quite different from what Paul has in mind. For Paul, the truth was to lead to godliness, not to simple conformity. Verse 15 states that to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their minds and their consciences are defiled. The root of the problem, brothers and sisters, is internal. The mind and the conscience. If that is not right, then it's impossible to please God. Hebrews 11 verse 6 states that without faith, it is impossible to please Him. For whoever would draw near must believe that He exists and that He rewards those who seek Him. That's why Titus states that they profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. Even if those works may look good on the outside, works not rooted in faith are not pleasing to the Lord. And as a result, Paul says, they are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. True godliness, brothers and sisters, begins when we place our faith and our hope squarely in the sure promises of God, revealed in the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, as Paul alludes to in the opening of his letter. But some in the church were leading people astray through false teaching even bringing whole families into ruin. And isn't that what we also observe? Those who go astray often place their very own families on a path that leads them on the road to destruction. Paul says it is the elders' responsibility to silence those who teach falsely. Elders, it is your duty to inquire of the faith life of the flock under your charge and to teach and instruct those in the way of truth. So, beloved, when the elders come to your home for a home visit and they ask the difficult and personal questions that dig beneath the surface to see whether your life is rooted in the hope secured by our Savior on the cross, don't be upset. Don't think that they don't have any business asking about your personal life. God has called them to this task. Be thankful that the Lord has placed such men on your path to lead you in the way of righteousness. We live in a world rooted in deceit where lying is the norm. The elder of the churches are there to ensure that faith is sound anchored in the sure promises of God. And Paul wants to impress upon Titus just how bad the problem in Crete has become by pointing to one of their own poets. He writes, one of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. 
Crete was known for its immorality. And they had earned the reputation for dishonesty. But if we are honest, brothers and sisters, if we are true to Scripture, then all humanity deserves this reputation. The psalmist in Psalm 116 verse 11 teaches that all men are liars. The Cretans then or the postmoderns now, both of whom want you to believe that you can follow your own way. That is why the Lord has called the church to appoint men of character to positions of authority. Men of sound faith, able to teach. Beloved, in the midst of a deceitful world, the Lord has appointed elders to defend his truth within the congregation, to instruct and teach God's people. Should there be those found promoting falsehood, not abiding in the truth, God calls the elder to rebuke them. But such a rebuke does not have the purpose of creating animosity or dissension within the congregation. But rather its intent is that they may be sound in faith. Our God knows our sinful inclinations. He knows that we are given to believe the lie. And so in his mercy he calls us into fellowship with his church where the gospel of salvation is proclaimed week after week, and he bids us to believe the sure promises of God secured by our Savior on the cross and proclaimed week after week. And if that wasn't enough, he also appoints office bearers, those anchored in the sure promises of God to ensure that I don't fall prey to the lies and deceit of this world and so be led astray. The God who cannot lie has given us a sure promise of salvation in contrast to all the lies of the world. He has a plan for preserving his church. And the elder is a vital part of that plan, put in place for our upbuilding and our defense. What a blessing. Amen.